Chapter 2. Intern Judas found me on the floor of the shared bathroom. Dwayne called an ambulance. The NHS had no alternative but to open its welcoming arms. Naturally hyperactive, a liking for excess and a little bit thick, I suppose it was always going to end like this. I watched the nutrients drip into my arm and concluded a change of personality was required if I were to accommodate this illness. If I could turn into a fat lazy slob who didn't like alcohol and had no ambition whatsoever, that would be perfect. In the bed opposite me lay an old man with yellow, paper-thin, liver-spotted skin. Tubes entered him from all directions. His face, gentle and heroic, sent over a smile, along with the myriad of thoughts a dying man holds. I felt a tinge of jealousy. He was approaching his happy end while I was approaching what? didn't bear thinking about, but it was looking like a long painful crawl to a fruitless dirgy death somewhere in the hopeless future, or worse. Tears trickled down my face and into my ears. I wanted to get a finger in there and have a good route round, but my arms didn't have the energy. I felt a tissue gently wipe my cheeks, mopping up the moisture. I opened my eyes. A face hovered above me. A loud voice boomed. Bloody hell! This is freaky, Joe, isn't it? Very, very freaky. I had to agree. It was very freaky indeed. A young nurse hurried over trying to shush Lawrence. She helped him back into his bed before pulling the curtains around mine. A few moments later, she returned with hot water, towels and a device resembling a trebuchet. My name's Angela, she said. I'm going to bathe you. Relax. Angela rolled me onto my side undid the bows on the back of my gown and peeled it away. My paper underwear was removed in a less delicate manner, ripped off in one Chippendale-esque movement. She diligently wiped, cleaned and polished. She replaced the old garments with fresh ones, my dignity restored, until she manhandled me into a harness. At the press of a button, I was lifted into the air. Angela carried on with her duties, stripping and replacing the bedsheets beneath me. I dangled from the boom arm, swaying slightly, just the top of my head and the bottom half of my legs visible. I looked like something a stork had delivered, a newborn unable to fend for itself, an innocent at the mercy of the kind and caring. A nurse walking past caught sight of me through the crack in the curtains and giggled hysterically. Angela lowered me onto the freshly made bed and pulled up a chair. While he's staying with us, Joe, We don't want you to worry, so if there's anything on your mind, just let us know, okay? We've been in contact with a few people who deal with your condition and a lady called Sharon will be coming in today to assess you. I tried to speak. She leant in closer. I didn't hear that. Can you say it again? Fuck, no, please, not her, I thought I managed to say, but she still didn't hear me. You rest, Joe. She tucked me in, stroked my cheek and floated off to Florence Nightingale someone else. Despite stripping me naked and leaving me hanging helpless in a hammock, I liked her. I liked her a lot. She gave me hope. Unlike the indefatigable Sharon, the kingpin in a doomed NHS-run ME course. I first caught sight of her six months ago. Her large frame, draped in a billowing floral dress, was squeezing itself out of a small store cupboard. Under her arm, she carried a three-legged flip chart, 
The fight to erect it ensued, while her assistant, Frank, handed out notepads and pens. How are we all feeling? Are there any symptoms affecting you today? No one spoke. Frank tried again. Is there anything I can get you? Yes, I want my fucking life back, sweetheart. I laughed and looked over at the woman two seats away from me. If we could refrain from swearing, Cat, that would be wonderful, said Frank. There, done it, announced Sharon. Right, let me have a look at you all. She scanned the room, staring at us gravely. Well, as gravely as was possible for such an insanely happy person. She took the top off a marker pen, which was now poised above the flip chart, ready for action. No single cure has been found for this illness. There is, however, increasing evidence implicating certain factors that trigger it. Let's have a look at some of these. And she was off, scribbling away like an idiot savant. Number one, infections, severe flu, glandular fever, long recovery time, prolonged fatigue. Two, life events, bereavement, termination of relationship, pregnancy, change of employment, etc, etc. Three, stress, low immune system, hectic life, or all of the above, maybe none of the above. Right, whew, Sharon gasped, flushed from the frantic exertion. Who, whew, who recognises any of those? All six of us tentatively nodded. Good, that's fantastic, guys. The first battle is for us to understand how this terrible condition may have begun, and we've done it. Sharon's assistant, Frank, raised his hand. She gave him permission to speak with a flick of her head. Uh, I don't think battle is a good word to use here, Sharon. Why not? It suggests a fight. Well, they're fighting. She looked over towards us. We're fighting, aren't we? Well, I think predominantly they're suffering. Well, yes, of course they're suffering. That's a granted, Frank. But they're also fighting. She turned to the group again. You're fighting, aren't you? Personally, I don't think they should be fighting. That suggests conflict. They are conflicted. They're sick, but they don't want to be sick. Well, yes, of course, Sharon, but fighting is a strong word. Fighting takes energy. They, they need to control and pace that energy. OK, let's take a break, Sharon suggested, waving Frank over. The ill shuffled off to a corner to have biscuits and lukewarm tea, while Frank and Sharon had a heated exchange in the corridor outside. The groundbreaking new course was obviously having teething problems. The group, alone for the first time, began to mingle. A grey-looking man, Greg, started talking about his mortgage, self-employment and depression. He peeled off with two other grey-looking people who went into a corner to whisper. That left me, Kat and Brian, a 30-year-old builder with a round, weather-beaten face and beer belly. A plasterer by trade, had worked through a viral illness and was now a fellow sufferer. I feel completely useless, mate. Can't work. Too knackered to play with the kids. Skin. Can't go out because I can't stand loud noises. Can't drink because it makes me feel like shit and all my mates think I'm a lazy twat. Cat pointed at the tattoo on his arm. Oh, you support Arsenal? Brian rubbed the tattoo with the palm of his fat hand. Yeah, support them all my life. Not doing too well at the moment, are they, dear? Brian took a sharp intake of breath and was about to reply when Sharon marched back into the room, Frank following obediently behind. 
Okay, troops. Sharon turned to Frank. Can I say troops? Is it okay if I use that word? Troops? A severely undermined Frank nodded. Right, let's crack on. Symptoms. And she was off, scribbling again frantically. Each symptom, of which there were many, received a grunt of recognition from someone in the group. Brain fog got the most attention. It made simple tasks almost impossible, like remembering someone's name you've known for years. The process of recall blocked immediately by a huge cloud of cotton wool, diverting your thought back into the brain to be lost. Dizziness also came high on the list. Everyone agreed the constant feeling of falling over was unnerving. But most unnerving of all was the way the symptoms and their severity waxed and waned from day to day. The victim left waiting for the next attack, which, when in full force, made them feel literally ill all over. Sharon motored on to the next topic, mitochondria dysfunction, which may or may not be a central issue, but it was where she lost us. Brian had his head in his hands. The three grey people were exchanging secretive looks. Cat was fast asleep and I was staring out of the window. Sharon clapped her hands, regaining our attention. Right, let's take a break. We'll start again at two, when Frank will talk you through some practical help we have to offer. Things like graded exercise and CBT. That's basically thinking your cup is half full, not half empty. It's a little more complicated than that, said Frank. Sharon pointed to her watch and then left. Frank ferreted around in a store cupboard at the back of the room, pulled out six yoga mats and placed them on the floor. We dutifully lay on them and listened to whale music being played through a tinny portable stereo. Forty minutes later, Sharon returned, waking everyone, including Frank. OK, chop chop, mats away. Sharon pointed to Frank, then the mats, then the storeroom. Frank finished his task, then stood in front of the seated group, which now included Sharon. He flicked through a notebook, took an excessively chewed pen from his mouth, then nervously addressed us. I'd like to talk to you about a few tools that will be of help to you. The first is graded exercise therapy, GET. It's very simple. It concerns finding a suitable baseline of physical activity, which can then be gradually increased. Now, this done alongside activity management, which is filling in a chart regularly throughout the day, logging what you've been doing, how you're feeling, will then allow you to work out what you can manage without tipping over the edge into a relapse. Greg raised his hand. I've got a dog. Frank furrowed his brow. That's nice. It needs exercising every day, morning and night. Oh, I see. Actually, that could work well for you. You could use that as a tool for your graded exercise. What if you can't walk as far as the dog without it making you feel unwell? I suppose you'd have to get someone to walk it for you when you were unable to manage it, said Frank, thinking it'd solve the problem. What if you didn't live with anyone? If you had no partner? Well, a friend might be able to help. What if you didn't have any friends? But look, I don't know, I suppose you could pay a dog walker. What if you couldn't afford to pay a dog walker because you've got ME and you can't work? Frank started chewing his pen again. Well, I suppose you'd have to get rid of it. Exactly. Greg lowered his head. Exactly. Frank quickly moved on. Right. Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, CBT. It's another useful tool. Put simply, it's a therapy that aims to help you manage your problems by changing how you think and act. It helps you to realise that your problems are often created by you 
It's not the situation itself that is making you unhappy, but how you think about it and react to it. Here's an example. You're having a bad day. You walk down the road and someone you know ignores you. Now, unhelpful thoughts like, they don't like me, could make you feel rejected and down. But helpful thoughts like, they look a little bit wrapped up in themselves. I wonder if something's wrong, makes you feel positive rather than negative towards that person. You can use this on your symptoms as well. For instance, if you're having severe brain fog, instead of thinking, this is ruining my day, I'm ill again, my life is terrible, you could say, this won't last forever. When it goes, I'll feel fine. Do you get the idea? Brian put his hand up. Yes, Brian. What if a person don't like you? Which person, Brian? A person who ignored you in the street. What if they don't like you and you never find out why because they won't talk to you? What's the point in feeling sorry for them because you think they've got a problem when actually they think you're a lazy twat for not going to work? Is this something you've experienced, Brian? Greg's hand shot up. What about my dog? How do you mean? How are you going to use this CBT on my dog? Frank began to wring his hands. Well, instead of thinking, I will never have a dog again, you could think, a dog is not the best kind of animal for me at this moment in my life. Then think about alternatives. A cat, perhaps. Greg shook his head. A lot dogs. Okay, well, what about a little dog? A little dog that doesn't need to walk a lot. Like a chihuahua. Exactly, like a chihuahua. I'd rather have a gerbil. Well, get a gerbil then. I don't want a gerbil, I want the dog. Right, let's leave it there, said Sharon, as she jumped up from a chair. Frank will hand out literature with some exercises on the topic. Please work on these at home. The day was almost over. We were all utterly exhausted, apart from Sharon, who began her closing address. Do not undermine your illness. Treat it with respect, and with hard work, you'll win the fight. Frank interrupted. I'm sorry to have to say this, but not all of you will win the struggle to overcome this terrible affliction. The figures on full recovery are not uplifting. You may, however, be able to achieve a happy life within the confines of this condition. Sharon gave a, yeah, whatever look to Frank, then put on a coat and bounded out of the room. Frank shook our hands and wished us hope for the future. He was sensitive and caring. Not sure he was in the right job, though. Lawrence was in a chatty mood as usual. He sat on the edge of my bed and told me that I'd missed a visitor. Her name was Sharon. Apparently, she tried to shake me awake for several minutes, then left in a huff. It looked like Lawrence's medication had worked and he was back to his normal self, a hyperactive, flighty conversationalist. I've got an infection, wound didn't heal, had a temperature and wasn't eating, so they took a few tests, told me I had it, MRSA, nothing to worry about, everybody gets it. He's a bloody nice guy, Brian, did some plastering for me. He shouldn't have been doing that kind of work, though. In fact, he shouldn't have been working at all. He took my advice, sought medical help, and hey, bloody presto, he's diagnosed. Brian was the link to my initial ill-fated meeting with Lawrence. At the end of the ME course, we chatted briefly. He thrust a piece of paper into my hand and pointed to the note. Call him. He knows more about all this than that pair of jokers. They're just dipping their toes in the frigging pond. It turned out Lawrence did know quite a lot. His mother had suffered with ME for 35 years, during which time he'd collected reams of information that he compiled into booklets and gave away to anyone interested, which wasn't very many people at all. The long, miserable days recuperating were tedious. 
With little to do but observe the hospital staff go about their business, several of them, I concluded, must have ME, mainly the cleaners. They lethargically lugged buckets and mops around but never used them. Lawrence, a restless bundle of energy, looked like a prisoner awaiting release. Hands and feet were tapping anything that could be tapped. A streak of spring sunshine bounced into the ward, hitting him smack in the face, igniting an idea. Let's pop out. Looks bloody lovely out there. I put my tracksuit top over my gown, and a couple of minutes later, we were sitting outside the hospital with the smokers. Come on, said Lawrence, once around the block. Before I could say, I think I'll go back inside, I feel a bit rough, he'd gone. A porter helped me return to the ward. The lift door opened onto the fourth floor, where he pushed me out with a grunt. Under his breath, I heard him mutter, Druggy tosser. The Kappa tracksuit seemed to be doing something strange to people's opinions about me. New clothes were definitely a priority. His violent push propelled me ten yards down the corridor, where I was brought to a halt by a very concerned cognitive behavioural therapist, Frank. Joe, just a person. How are you? I told him I wasn't too good because of a bout of extreme sound sensitivity, which was true. At worst, the slightest noise could be amplified to such a degree that the inside of your skull felt like it had been struck with a hammer. Oh, that's awful, said Frank. He leant over my shoulder, speaking quietly as he wheeled me to my bed. Sharon asked me to visit you. Apologies for the delay, but we've been busy. Now, look, I'd like to have a chat ask you some questions, see if we can spot any factors that might have contributed to the decline in your health. If we can do that, we might be able to stop it from happening again. Is it okay? I reluctantly agreed with a nod. He helped me into bed, opened his briefcase and took out a questionnaire. He flicked the top of his ballpoint and settled himself into the visitor's chair before giving me a reassuring wink. Right, here we go. Were you eating well prior to being admitted? Yes. How well would you say? Very well, Frank. Lots of fruit and vegetables, that kind of thing? Absolutely. Actually, I hadn't eaten a vegetable in weeks, just pot noodles and toast. Have you been abstaining from alcohol? I told him I had. That's good. Alcohol can do terrible things to people in your condition. We don't know why, but it's not tolerated well at all. Now, I have to ask you the next question, so please don't be offended. Had you been taking recreational drugs? No, I said offended. Had you been using the pacing technique? Yes, I lied. And what about CBT? Were you using that on a regular basis? All the time. Whoops, another one. So you have no idea what may have triggered this relapse. He looked at me waiting impatiently for an answer. No, 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 I'm sorry. Can't help you, Frank. I did feel a little guilty telling untruths, but I didn't want to show myself up as a 39-year-old pathetic idiot. Joe, when you were admitted, your blood test showed you had consumed large amounts of amphetamines, alcohol and cannabis. I'd just been outed as a 39-year-old pathetic idiot. If you don't want to get better... You said people didn't get better. If you don't want a condition that's manageable, then that's up to you. It's your decision. But if you want to improve your health and possibly recover, there are some things you just can't do. Eating badly, drinking heavily and taking amphetamines are definitely on the list. Frank, 
I took amphetamines once. Honest, just once. He shook his head. I'm not your mum, Joe. You don't have to lie to me. I'm not lying. And I've never lied to my mum. The ball's in your court. You have to help yourself now. I can't do any more for you than go over the CBT basics again. Would you like me to do that for you now? I stared at him the way Clint Eastwood stares at people just before he shoots them. Frank sighed. Okay, I respect your decision, but please, please listen to yourself and your body and do what he asks. Right now, my body was asking me to punch him on the nose. Are you sure you don't want me to arrange an appointment with a drugs counsellor? It was once, Frank, once. He left, shaking his head. He'd been working alongside Sharon too long. His bedside manner had definitely altered. Moments after Frank left, someone clawed at the curtains around my bed, trying to gain entry. Lawrence popped his head through the gap. Who was that? A part of me, the not very nice part of me, wanted to say it was a member of the KGB. With nothing to gain from sending my only ally into a bout of mania, I took a few deep breaths, controlled my Frank-induced anger, and told Lawrence I needed to rest. Okay, no problem. By the way, thought you'd like to know. Got the all clear. I can go. Bingo. When I woke, a note left by my bed read, I'm here to help. Call anytime. Lawrence. P.S. I don't actually own a phone anymore, so you'd have to pop round. He hadn't left his address, so that probably wasn't going to happen. <laughs>